Good morning, church family. How are you today? Let's try that again. How are you today, buddy? Good? Good? Yeah? Okay. Well, hey, it's so good to see you this morning. My name is Josh. I'm one of the ministers. We have not had a chance to meet. I'd love to say hi to you after our gathering right there in the lobby. So please come say howdy here shortly today. You are joining us for a great time because we're beginning a brand new series called The Seven Signs of Jesus. And we're going to look at seven moments in the life of Jesus through the gospel of John. And these are stories of faith. So if you will, grab your Bible and join me in John chapter 2. John chapter 2 will be there in just a moment. While you're turning there, though, I want to show you a picture. Last Sunday, after our second worship, we had this moment where Lacey Mason gave her life to Jesus in baptism. Now, but hold on. Lacey, are you here this morning if you are? Hey, stand up right here, right here. Would you all celebrate Lacey's new birth in Jesus? Thank you, girl. Thank you. And today, at 2.30, when our crew from Winterfest, we got a bunch of people at Winterfest, staying up late nights, having a good time, hearing great things about the Lord, worshiping together. But when they get back at 2.30, there's one of the students who will be here who said, I want to put Jesus on in baptism. So at 2.30, we're going to have another person come to faith in Jesus. Is that good news to anyone today? Amen. I'm just so glad to be a part of a body where we don't simply have the privilege of hearing of God's work in some distant place, but God is working here. And that's not because of how good we are. Amen? Amen? Yeah, it's not because of us. It's because of Jesus. And so, so good to be able to see these beautiful, beautiful moments. And today we're going to get into one of those beautiful moments. But I want to begin with this sort of thought. And here's the thought. When you hear the phrase... Life of the party, and don't, don't put anything up just yet, Clint, but when you hear the phrase, life of the party, what comes to mind? In fact, I want you to take five seconds, just real fast, turn to someone. When you hear the phrase, life of the party, what comes to mind? Real quick, five seconds, share with someone. All right. Now listen, I know when I ask a question like that and I hear giggles, that is not the time for me to start asking you to give me your answers. Because it may not be something I can share, okay? So when I think of life of the party, a lot of different thoughts and types of people come to mind. In fact, this is the kind of person that comes to mind when I think of life of the party. I mean, this is the kind of guy that you expect at the party. This is the kind of guy that you're ready to roll in. And you may not be sure what you're going to get, but what you get is going to be interesting. Is that a fair word? I mean, he owns his exuberance. I'm fat. Let's party. And this is the kind of guy that you'd expect at a lively party. Now, if I were to ask you, and don't raise your hand on this one, don't tell someone, but if I were to ask you, do you have a list of people that you would not invite to a party? Just give me a little wink if you, if you kind of have that person. And by the way, if you're not winking at me, just, just hate to break this to you, you are that person for everyone else. If you don't know someone... That there are these people that you go, man, life of the party, this is who I'd want. But then there's some people, Ugh. and when I think of, when I think of sort of a category of people that maybe is not the kind of people that you'd invite or I'd invite to a party, unfortunately, I think a lot of times it's going to be the religious people. Often it's going to be the church folk because they're the people that'll come Saturday night, but then Sunday morning, they'll want to gather their friends together and have a little prayer session about you. You know what I'm talking about? And so when I think of the kind of person that I would not invite to the church party or to the party is this kind of guy. 
And I mean, come on, this guy, he takes the fun out of fundamentalism, doesn't he? I mean, there's nothing joyful, nothing exciting about it. And unfortunately, that is often the picture we have when it comes to our picture of Jesus and our picture of Jesus' people. But I want to tell you some good news this morning. Jesus was invited to a party and he went. (laughs) Isn't that something? And not only did he go to the party, he actually kept the party going. This is the the first sign. In fact, not only did he keep the party going, he actually performed a miracle. Now, in the synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those first three gospel writers, when they talk about the miracles of Jesus, they use this one particular word. It's a Greek word. It's dunamis. Everyone say dunamis. Dunamis. It might sound familiar because that's really where we get our English word dynamite from. The miracles of Jesus are the power of God expressed through the power of Jesus Christ. And so they talk about the miracles as dunamis. But John, the fourth gospel writer who tells the story of Jesus' life, doesn't use the word dunamis. When he talks about the miracles of God, he uses a different word. He uses this word right here. It's semion. Everyone say semion. And it's this word. It just means sign. Because John isn't interested in us being impressed with the miracle He wants us to be impressed with the maker of the miracles. Are we tracking? And in fact, it's not the power of God that he wants you to focus on. He wants you to focus on the one who is doing the work. That's what a sign does, correct? So you're driving along and you see a stop sign. The stop sign is not the point, right? The stop sign points to the point. Points to the reality that this place right here, this is where you're supposed to stop. At least you're supposed to, correct? It's not a suggestion. I know some of us think it's a suggestion, but it's really, you're supposed to do something. When you see the sign, it calls you into something else. Or it's sort of like um, when you see a green light or a red light. By the way, how many of you have seen a green light? Any of you? Oh, really? Is that? Okay. Okay. So red light, stop. Yellow light, speed up. Green light, go, right? That's how this works. So when you see a red, yellow, or green light, it is pointing you to something other than itself. Here's the point. A sign is not the point. A sign points to the point. And John wants you and I to get the point that the signs point us to Jesus Christ. And in fact, he says this is why he puts them in there. In John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, John gives his thesis, his reason for writing this when he says these words. Jesus performed many other signs. In the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. So in the Gospel of John, he didn't list them all. But these are written that, notice this, you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. That means chosen one. The Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John's purpose for these is to point us to life in Jesus Christ. And he chooses seven of them. Why seven? Now, if you've been with us for any length of time, especially if you were with us during last fall's book of Revelation series, you know that the number seven has significance to Jewish people. Seven symbolize perfection or completion. There's seven days in the week, a complete week, right? It symbolized God or God's perfection or God's completion. And so John chooses sevens throughout his gospel to give us a picture that Jesus is God and he is all you need for life. And so he uses lots of sevens. For instance, in the gospel of John, he has seven names for Jesus. He lists seven I am statements for Jesus. He has seven witnesses that testify to Jesus. There are seven key conversations. There are seven women mentioned. There are seven ministries of the Holy Spirit. There are seven questions that Pilate asks to Jesus when Jesus is on trial. And there are seven signs of Jesus 
In other words, Jesus is everything you need. Maybe a mathematical equation would go something like this. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. You just need Jesus. And so this is what John wants us to see. And so in this very first sign, he gives us the first picture of Jesus. In John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, it says these words. On the third day of the week, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother, Mary, was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Now, when the wine was gone. By the way, CFCers get really nervous with this story, don't we? It's like, why couldn't he say when the Welch's grape juice was gone or something like that? But when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? We're going to have to address that here in a moment. My hour has not yet come, Jesus said. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now, draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned to wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did, verse 11, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first sign through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, let's get the setting for just a moment here. A few key details. First, we're told that this takes place on the third day of the week. Now, the third day of the week, when you hear that, what other significant event happened on the third day of the week, church? Do you know? Does anyone know? Okay, okay. On the third day of the week, what happens, church? Resurrection. This is a big deal. On the third day of the week, we're going to hear about this moment that changes history. It splits everything from death to the potential for life. And so John, at the end of Jesus' ministry, when he dies, he's in the tomb for three days. On the third day, he rises from the grave. And here at the beginning, the first of the signs, he's bookending the ministry of Jesus on the third day, on the third day. Now, what does the third day refer to? Maybe it's the third day of the actual week. That would be Tuesday. By the way, that's possible because Tuesday was considered the most blessed day of the week. Read the Genesis account. The Lord blesses every day of the week, but he blesses Tuesday twice. Isn't that interesting? So people are like, man, if I'm going to get married, let's do it on the double blessing day. Others will say, no, it's the third day of the week, meaning it's the third day, uh, or not third day of the week, but the third day of the wedding ceremony, because these weddings would often last, the feast would last for like seven days. And then still others say, no, this third day refers to the amount of time that took place since the end of chapter 1's events. I don't know which, but John wants you to know on the third day, because there's theological significance, God is about to do something big. And it happens at a wedding. And you just need to know God loves weddings. Genesis chapter 2, you have a wedding with Adam and Eve. The word there for woman actually refers to a marriage moment. And then you have in Revelation 19, the end of all things is a wedding. And so here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he's going, man, it's at a wedding. I love weddings. And Jesus' family is at the wedding. Now, why were they there? 
Many people are convinced, many scholars will tell us that the reason they were there is because the bride or the groom were a close family friend or possibly a member of Jesus' own family. Perhaps the bride or the groom were one of Jesus' brothers or sisters. That would make some sense as to why Mary gets involved in the problem. Because the problem is they run out of wine. They run out of wine. So here's what this passage shows us. Three things very quickly. This passage teaches us three things. What Jesus came to do. Who gets to see his signs and how everything will end. What Jesus came to do, who gets to see the signs, and how everything will end. Let's just walk through these very briefly. The first sign shows us what Jesus came to do. Now, again, let's walk through this moment. When the wine was gone, verse 3 says, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Why is this such a big deal? Two things. Number one, this was a honor-shame culture. And as the groom as the one responsible for the wedding you were responsible for providing for your guests hospitality was paramount and if you did not do it well the shame of that momentary failure would follow you and your family name forever it'd be like this years later people would be talking about it be like oh yeah you remember their wedding that's the wedding where we ran out of wine the, the shame of that would actually hover over your family, not just in your generation, but potentially for the next generation or the one after that as well. Shame came if you did not provide what the guests need. Now, there's a second reason this was significant. And scholars debate this some, but there's evidence that if the host did not provide enough wine or did not take good care of the guests, the host could be legally fined for that. Meaning you pay the guests for their inconvenience and for how you shamed them in the moment. This is a significant thing where there's the family shame and the financial ruin. This is a terrible moment. And so Mary comes to Jesus. And I love this moment. She comes to him. How do you think as the mom she came to him? She's like, Jesus, they've run out of wine. Is that how she did it? Was it more demanding? I don't know what the tone was, but she comes to her son and she says, they've run out of wine. I know who you are. Help. She's the one who had the angel speak to her saying, this little boy is more than just a little boy. He is conceived of the Holy Spirit. He is God himself. This is the mother who got to hold him while the magi, the wise men, prophesied who he would be. This is the mama who found her son in the temple at age 12, talking to all the religious leaders and being told that he is there on his heavenly father's business. She is the one person who knows who Jesus is better than anyone else in this moment. And she says, help, please. Now, there's no indication that before this point, Jesus had performed any miracles. There's all these little apocryphal stories of Jesus doing things as a little kid, like raising a little bird from the dead, or, you know, like parting his soup like the Red Sea. I I don't know if that happened. But this is the only place where we see the first sign, the first moment. And here's what I want you to see. Shame would hang on the family. There would be a financial ruin to the family if Jesus doesn't step up. So what did Jesus come to do? This is a sign for what Jesus came to do, friends. Here it is. Jesus came to remove your shame. Jesus came to remove my shame. 
See, there is a shame that comes on us when we break God's law. And it's not because God is arbitrary. It's that there's a way things work. And when we break it, we feel the weight of that brokenness first on ourselves, the shame of it. But then there's a legal consequence to what we have done. We're told by Scripture that we have actually broken relationship with God. We have damaged something and often with each other as well. And now there is a cost to it. And someone's got to pay it. And so in this moment, Jesus is showing his ultimate purpose for coming, that he came to remove the shame of our sin. Now, how does he do it? Did you notice in verse 5? There were six stone water jars right there, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Now hang here for a second. Six stone water jars. Let me show you what this looks like. This is a picture that we took while we were in Cana in Israel last fall. Right here you've got Anthony Sides, you've got Debbie Walling. This gives you a bit of a sense of size to the size jars that they were talking about. And each of these would hold between 20 and 30 gallons of water, specifically for ceremonial washing. What's that all about? In the Jewish context, they had numerous legal requirements. Bobby talked about the sacrificial side a moment ago. But they also had a cleanliness side, meaning when you came into a house, you had to wash your hands or you'd have to wash your face or you'd wash your feet. When you were doing a particular religious activity, there were certain things you did because you were unclean spiritually. And this was a way of symbolically washing off the filth. But how many of us know that a bath on the outside cannot fix what is wrong on the inside? And that's why that number six is so important. Remember, John is very specific about what he says here. There were six stone water jars. If seven is the number for perfection, one less than seven is imperfection. That is the number the Jews would associate with all of us, with humans. We were created on the sixth day of creation and we are imperfect, broken, unable to be perfect on our own. And even our very best effort of making ourselves clean using the ceremonial rituals are not enough to fix what's wrong. Friend, I hate to break it to you, but you can't fix what's wrong with you. I can't fix what's wrong with me. What is broken on the inside is bigger than our ability. But praise be to God, Jesus came to do the work for us. Is that good news to anyone else? And so he comes. The first thing you need to know, the bottom line, Jesus came to remove your shame. Now, there's this next little point that I think is so incredible. Who gets to see the signs of Jesus? I mean, wouldn't you just love to be someone who's always on the front row getting to watch Jesus work and just go, yay, God. I want you to see that you can be that kind of a person. Because I think so many of us, we come in and maybe you've been following Jesus for a while. And you love Jesus with all your heart. There's no question about that. But you come in and you just kind of feel like, man, I'm going through the motions, but I don't see the work of God. I want to show you how you and I can see the work of God in some very powerful ways. Notice what happens. So Jesus is now brought this problem. And Mary comes to him and says, Jesus They are all out of wine. This is no good. All we have left is water and Pepsi. And nobody likes Pepsi. Can I get an amen? There we go. All the Christians in the house. Don't don't email me. I'm joking, okay? All right. And so things have gone bad, Jesus. We got to fix what's wrong. And I love how Jesus, he says, woman. Now, let's just address that for a moment here. Fellas. May I suggest you never tell your mother or call her woman? Anyone else? 
Like if you pull that one on your mom, like let me just see how this one will work. You say, woman, pass the ketchup. I guarantee you will be wearing the ketchup if you pull that one with your mom. So what's going on here? A better translation for us would be the word ma'am. Jesus is speaking to her in a way that is respectful, but it is not the way that a son would talk to his mother because the next statement Jesus makes explains it. He says, the hour has not yet come. Why are you involving me? My time has not yet come. There's an hour. That hour refers to when he will die on the cross for us. He is telling his mom, this is a dividing line before my ministry begins, but now, this moment, you're calling me into this. And there's no turning back the clock. I'm about to change relationship with you and with the rest of the people around me because I'm not simply a mere mortal. I am the Messiah chosen of God, and this is the starting point to that. Do you get what's happening here? I mean, how would that lay on your heart if you're Mary? But how does Mary respond? I love this. Does she say anything to Jesus? <laughs> she doesn't say anything. She heads back to get more ranch and broccoli. And she sees the servants. She's like, whatever he says to do, you do it. He's my son, also the son of God. And she just keeps going. But notice the phrase, do whatever he tells you. You want to know the kind of people who see the work of God? It's the whatever he tells you kind of people. And notice everything that Jesus says they do. He says, look at these six stone water jars. And he says, fill them with water. So notice this, they filled them to the brim. Let's consider this for a moment. If you were going to have these water jars full, you'd have to go get the water from somewhere. There was no tap to get it from. You'd be taking jars to the well. Now the well could be in the center of the city like some cities or outside the city some distance. You remember in John chapter 8 when Jesus meets the woman at the well and the well is outside the city? Jesus, you're telling us we got to fill these things up? 20 to 30 gallons a piece, that's 120 to 180 gallons. Do you know how many trips that is? You know what my temptation would be? I'm just going to, I think right about here, just under the rim, that's good enough. But do you notice Their obedience is not partial. It is complete. In fact, that phrase, to the brim, it's the idea that if you looked at the edge, you'd see the water almost bubbled over it. If you tap it, it just roll out. And then he says, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And notice what they do. They did so. Now, did they know that it was wine yet? Maybe. Or is it possible the water was still just water? Is it possible they didn't yet see the miracle? Can you imagine being the nervous servant who's going to look like a complete fool by bringing water to the master of the banquet and saying, hey, drink up, my brother? But they did so. They didn't ask. This is the idea that so many of us grew up with. How many of you remember or had parents like this? They'd say, if I tell you to jump, you say what? We all have the same parents. Good job. Or you had the dad who said, when I say jump, You ask how high on the way up, right? And that's what you see here. Immediate obedience. And then notice this. Because they were obedient, notice the beautiful thing. Next verse. He, the master of the banquet, did not realize where it, the wine, had come from. Though, notice this. The servants who had drawn the water knew. What am I trying to say to you? The people who get to see the power of God at work are the obedient servants. It's people who say, no matter what you ask, the answer is yes, sir. 
No matter what you tell me to do, even if it makes no sense, the answer is yes, I will do it. Put this up. Obedient servants see Jesus' signs. And notice, again, he doesn't use perfect people. He uses the servants. He uses the unknowns. He uses the overlooked. In other words, God's greatest power can often be seen through those who others don't see. I don't know where you are this morning. And I have no idea what you may be dealing with. But is it possible that some of us are missing out on the power of God, not only in our lives, but in our city or in our church? And we're missing out on it because we're just not willing to be fully obedient to Jesus. And I'm not trying to step on anyone's toes, but is there anything in your life that you have not yet said yes, sir, to Jesus about? Is there a person that you have yet to forgive, but he's saying you need to forgive? Is there someone that you've lied to and you need to go back and make that right? Have you stolen from someone? Have you been dishonest? Have you, are there things that are going on? Because here's the reality. God was able to fill those empty Jars because they were empty of themselves. It's only when we say, I'm empty of all this, yes, sir, to you, that he's able to fill us up and use us. Now, we don't become the ones that everyone praises. We simply get to be signs pointing to the one who saves. Who gets to see it? The obedient servants. May we be the people for whom Jesus says on our deathbed, well done, good and faithful. What? Servants. To hear that from Jesus. And then real quick, the last part here, how will all this end? I want you to know this sign gives hope to the most hopeless among us. Notice how it ends. See, the water comes, the master of the banquet doesn't have any idea where it came from, but notice what he says here. Then he, the master of the banquet, called the bridegroom. You see, the bridegroom was responsible to make sure they had enough, and he'd failed. Isn't it kind of interesting? Jesus is called the bridegroom. And the real bridegroom provides for all the secondary bridegrooms. And so the master of the banquet calls the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the box wine after. I mean, that's that's the English version of this, okay? See, in the Jewish culture, they had multiple pressings for their wine. And again, I know this gets weird for those of us in the churches of Christ. Some of us just wish, oh, Jesus, why couldn't you have turned the water to Welch's grape juice? I mean, like, that's just, ugh. But but let me just say this for some of you here. God gives us good gifts. It's how we use them that makes them not good. It's not the gift itself. And so there were multiple pressings. The first pressing, that was like the best stuff. That is the top shelf, gold label, bottle of wine that you spend way too much for. That's what this was. Then the second pressing, that'd be like mediocre stuff. And then the third pressing, this is what you'd see a wino drinking down on the corner in a paper bag. It's the stuff that might still have some tannin in it, might have some twigs. They may even have to add some water to make it go a little longer. And the master of the banquet says, usually we start with the good stuff and we end with the less impressive stuff. Let me just time out here. How many of us would say that it feels like the past was more impressive than the future we're facing? Is anyone else here at all worried about the world in which we live? And you just go, man, all the things, I don't know what's coming next. And I get a little nervous about it. I mean, it it feels like third pressing, or maybe we're just all the way back down to water. There's nothing good. And some of us, the longer we live, the challenge I face, maybe you do too, is it's easy to start looking to your past with rose-colored glasses. Oh, so good. First pressing, second pressing, and now, Here's what I need you to hear. He says, 
Usually it's the great stuff, then it's the cheap stuff. Once the guests have had too much to drink, again, the honesty of Scripture is so great. But then he says this phrase, but you have saved the best till now. Here's what I want you to remember. If you are worried, dear sister, if you feel overwhelmed, my brother, If you worry about your life or the future in front of you, hear me now. This sign points to the reality that God will bring about good in the end. And if it is not good, then God's not done. And you say, yeah, yeah, yeah. My daddy died. Life was not good. He never got to see that good life you're talking about. My friend died. My aunt died. This situation happened. How can you say that God will work it all out and it'll be good if someone dies before seeing it? Hear me now. If you are in Christ Jesus, then death is simply the doorway to the real life where God is preparing all good things. The good is always in front of those who are in Jesus. If it is not good today, friend, hold your head up high. He holds the best for last, and in him the best is always yet to come for the believer. He will not leave you where you are. Even if in this side of eternity you don't see it, there will be good. If it's not good, God's not done. In fact, have you considered why Jesus made this wine? It wasn't just that it was quality good, it was quantity good. 120 to 180 gallons of wine. Question, what party needs that much wine halfway through it. Did you know that the quantity of wine was a symbol in the Old Testament of the coming Messiah and the end times? Let me give you one passage and we're almost done here. Amos chapter 9 says this, verse 13 and 14. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when new wine will drip from the mountains and flow from the hills. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. Jesus, dipping from the Old Testament prophecy that the end times would be symbolic or seen as just wine everywhere, the abundance of God. And now he says, it's here. More than you can handle, more than you need. The King of kings and the Lord of lords has come. This is why poet Alexander Pope wrote that the conscientious water saw its master and blushed, turning to wine. Your king, when he comes, can change everything. And if it's not yet good, friend, God's not done yet. And with one last picture. His ministry begins with wedding, and the coming kingdom ends with a wedding. You remember this from last fall, Revelation 19. We get two passages, verse 7 and 9. Notice what he says about the coming world. He says, let us rejoice and be glad in heaven and give him glory. This is what Jesus or John said of Jesus' miracle in verse 11 of chapter 2. For the wedding of the Lamb has come. And his bride, that'd be you and you and me, we've made ourselves ready. This is the picture. 
See, in this one sign, there's something for everyone, no matter where you are. Friend, if you do not yet know Jesus, you're still carrying the shame, but he came to remove that shame. You say, how? Is it through ritual washing? No, there's nothing magical about water, but it is through obedience in Jesus. You go, you meet him in the water, and he will wash you clean, not on the outside, but from the soul out. You will be filled with his very presence, like an empty vessel in need of filling. And you will have hope forever. Some of you who have been followers for years, you don't need to know about how to have the shame removed. You need to know how to see God at work. And it comes back to obedience. Is there any area that we need to kind of wrestle with God and say, it's scary, but I trust you. And I will be obedient. And then for others in here, you love Jesus, you follow Jesus, you're doing the best, but you are worried about the world. You're worried about your family. You're worried about the future. And you just need to know that if it's not good yet, God's not done yet. And get this, we're only through the first of the seven signs pointing to Jesus. Because he is everything we need. Let's stand. I'm going to pray over you as the musicians get prepared. And we're going to sing one final song here this morning. I don't know where you are, but I do know this. We all have a next step in Jesus today. It may be to say to the Lord, I'm ready to follow you, be obedient in baptism. If that's you, meet me in the lobby during the song. We'll pray together and we will get you ready and you too can experience new life in Jesus. Maybe for most of us, it's just I need to step into greater obedience. Lord, who do I need to forgive? Who do I need to let go of the burdens that I've been carrying? What do I need to do that I'm not doing? And still for others, we just need to hold on to the promise that if it's not good, God's not yet done. Father, we thank you that you are with us here and you are for each person here. This one sign is for every one of us in this room. I pray now that your spirit would speak to us and that we would not simply be those at the party who get to enjoy the benefits, but we would be those who press close to Jesus so we can see you at work. I do pray that you'll speak to those who have not yet said yes to you that they would today in baptism. For those who need to lean in in obedience, would you whisper in their ear that you love them and they never need be afraid of obeying you for in that obedience they will find greater life and freedom. And for all of us, I pray that we will be reminded of the truth that the worst moment of life is not the end. But there's coming a day when you will make all things new and it will be good. Until that day, may we hold on to you, our Savior Jesus. Amen.